Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word will you join as we sing how firm a foundation how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word Jesus has fled. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply the flame shall not hurt thee I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never, no never that soul though all hell that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never, no never, no never forsake. I serve a risen Savior, He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, I hear His voice of cheer. I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me. 
My love for music stems from an early age, but it's mostly because I had that to listen to every day of my life. Amen. And not many opportunities do I get to lead worship with my mother on the piano, but I love every minute of it. Amen. And I'm so thankful that she's willing to come this morning. That was pretty. Thank you. Choir, will you stand as we sing, Be Thou My Vision. Will you worship with us this morning?
safe that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Christ alone. 
heavens rise and thunders roar. I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still when the oceans rise. Oceans rise and thunders roll. I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. I will be still and know you. at his voice trembles at his voice how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God age to age he stands God, and all will see how great 
been a while since I sung a song, so I told him I would this morning, and uh, <clears throat> it is a privilege to be up here and serve the Lord and singing. Uh, the song I'm fixing to sing is called The Blood is Still There. I know you've heard it plenty of times, but some may grasp the concept, may not. It's talking about the Lord Jesus and him coming and shedding his blood, and there's a young boy asking his father about him and warmth the blood is still there, and it's always there. We just got to be willing to accept him. And serve him. So let's see what we can do. JC. Wonder night and Egypt. A fearful time had come for one little Hebrew boy. His father's firstborn son. Now, with the angel of death passing low, it was hard to fall asleep. But one little lamb stood in his mind as he lay there counting sheep. He wondered why the young lamb had to die. Why his blood was on the door Through the wind it rained It still remained But he wanted to be sure So he called out to his earthly father With a trembling voice so scared Crying, Father, will you please look and see if the blood is still there He said, son, now don't you worry For the blood is there to stay The wind may blow, the rain may fall But it won't just wash away The blood will stand, the rain You can rest assured that the blood is still there. Looking over the damage, the storm had left behind. The blood of 
to my knees in prayer. Crying, Father, will you please look and see if the blood is still there? He said, it's gone, now don't you worry. Oh, the blood is there to stay. The wind may blow, the rain may fall, we won't just watch away. The blood will stand, the raging storm has been applied with loving care. Safe, secured, you can rest assured that the blood is still there. Safe, secured, you can rest assured that the blood is still there. Thank you, Brother Danny. Thank you, Miss Linda. Brother Jason. And thank you, choir. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I thought that ending to How Great Is Our God, name above all names, worthy of our praise, and the choir singing How Great Is Our God over that, I believe... We may not have the biggest choir in the country, but we got one of the best. Amen. They work hard. Amen. Seven of you agree with me. Those of you that don't, I challenge you to come be part of the choir and see if you can't make it the best. But uh, they work really hard, and it just blesses my soul uh, when they practice and then when they uh, sing for us and and God just uses them in a mighty voice. So thank you for your hard work. This morning, be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, running through verse 28, Jesus, Lord of Sabbath, Lord of all. And today we get together, we're <clears throat> on a follow-up text, really, uh, from the message last week. It wasn't really intentional. I'm not really necessarily planning to move through the Gospel of Mark, but it really kind of worked out uh, that way this week as, as I began to pray through and, and work through what uh, we would be studying this morning. This, this passage just, it had jumped out to me before and it just stuck uh, right in the forefront of our minds. So I'm quite confident that this is where we are supposed to be this morning. But we looked this morning to make really one, one thing made clear. If we accomplish this one thing, at the end of the service, we will have had a successful service. We want to call our attention to the fact that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our praise. And not only is he worthy, he is the only thing that is worthy of our worship this morning. If we accomplish that, by the end of the sermon, I will not have messed it up too awful bad. We'll touch on the subject of the Sabbath today. It's a controversial enough topic in some walks. On occasion, there have been religions that have sprung forth from a zeal for the Sabbath. But this morning, I believe our text is going to reveal to us this. If our zeal is for a day, 
or if our zeal is for a law, or if our zeal is for something besides Jesus Christ, then our zeal is misplaced. Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship and praise. Please stand this morning if you are able in honor and reverence for the reading of the holy words of our holy God from the gospel of Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiatar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father God, God, I pray you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. God, I thank you for your Spirit's presence in the song service this morning. God, I thank you for your continued presence as we worship through your word. God, I pray you'd bind any spirit from this place that is not your Holy Spirit, that you would escort any thought from our mind at this moment that would hinder our worship and allow us to place our affection and our desire on you, Jesus, because you alone are worthy of that. God, you have your way and your will, and we will stand and honor and give you the praise. And it's in your sweet name that we pray this morning. As all God's people said, Amen and amen, you may be seated. Now we find ourselves here in Mark's gospel. And remember that we said last week that Mark's gospel is really kind of written in two halves. The first eight chapters, Jesus is establishing his sovereignty and his kingship and his deity. And then the last eight chapters are really where Jesus is on his way to the cross essentially to establish his kingdom. And so it's kind of split in those halves, he's establishing his kingship and his deity. Then he's going to the cross to claim his kingdom, so to speak. And at the end of chapter 2, we find ourselves in this little section of five verses. In the fourth of five events where Jesus is establishing his deity in the face of the Pharisees, you could say. And he's really establishing this to these religious leaders and he has a purpose in what he's doing, and we're going to see that. In fact, here we find ourselves in the fourth encounter with the Pharisees. If you were to look forward to chapter 3, verse 6, you would see that by the end of his fifth encounter of the Pharisees, they have went out and immediately plotted how they might destroy him. And so they were planning how they could destroy this Jesus who in just five encounters had established himself as one who could not only heal but could forgive sins. Had established himself as one who not only ate with sinners but could heal sinners. Had established himself as one who was above the laws of fasting as we saw last week. As we're going to see today, one who was the Lord of 
the Sabbath. And as we're going to see next week, one who was willing to have relationships over the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus had essentially done, it tore through the religious community's mindset. Those who were so religious began to hate Jesus because he said one thing, your law is not as important as my grace. My grace is what it's all about. And they would plan to get rid of him. Now, how cool is it that in verse 6, they have a plan, but really, it's Jesus' plan that they're accomplishing. How about that? Jesus was able to use these religious zealots to accomplish his work. I think that's pretty cool. But this morning, we're going to break this text into three parts. Imagine that. Three parts. The first thought we're going to focus on is that there's an accusation that comes from man's law. Verses 23 and 24, we see the Pharisees are observing Jesus and his disciples. And again, they point out something that they're doing, right? Last time they said, well, why don't they fast? The time before they said, why do you eat with sinners? And here they're looking closely again and they go, look, 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 look. They're plucking the heads of the grain. Jesus! Why for art thou pluckest the headeth of the grain as you walk through the grain field? What are you doing, your disciples? They're, they're taking the heads right off the grain. Don't you know it's the Sabbath? Now I know that some of you in this day and time might be inclined to say, Jesus' disciples, they are thieves, aren't they? Well, they're just eating food right out of somebody else's field. I don't know about you guys, but if I were to walk up in somebody's garden that I've never met and start plucking a tomato, I'd probably get a second look. It's not accepted in this day and time. The law may be called on me even. Can you see the front page of the paper? Rocky Valley pastor arrested stealing tomatoes out of the garden, right? It'd be news everywhere, but in this day, that just simply wasn't the case. In fact... In Deuteronomy 23, 25, the law that was given in the Old Testament said, if you were walking through your neighbor's field and you needed food for sustenance, you could take the heads off of the grain and eat them to provide you food for your journey. You just couldn't sickle it off at the ground and take it with you for later. You had to kind of take advantage then. In fact, in that time, as they went from place to place, it would have been virtually impossible for them not to be walking through a field of grain of some kind. And so as they walked through the field, if they were hungry, it was completely lawful for them to reach over, pluck the head off the grain, and eat the fruit out of it. And so they're not breaking the law by plucking the grain as they walk through the, through the field. And so the Pharisees can't be pointing out, hey, they're breaking the law on the Sabbath. What they're really saying is not they're breaking a law and here it is on the Sabbath day because it wouldn't matter if it was the Sabbath or not. If they were breaking a law, that'd be a problem. They're really saying... They're breaking a law of the Sabbath. They're breaking a law of the Sabbath. Not just on the Sabbath, but it's a law of the Sabbath. But in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, we see that God, having created everything in six days, on the seventh day rested and therefore instituted the Sabbath. We see that God in Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 reiterates the importance of observing the Sabbath. When as one of the Ten Commandments, he says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now surely, if the Sabbath was created by God, and the observation of the Sabbath is directed by God, and Jesus has spent all this time in these first two chapters establishing that he is God, 
then we could say that Jesus instituted and directed the importance of observing the Sabbath. Now surely his disciples would honor this Sabbath. But here the Pharisees feel that he's not doing so. They're accusing them of doing what is not lawful. So why was there such a disconnect between the Pharisees and the religious leaders' ideals of what Jesus should be doing and what Jesus should be allowing his disciples to do and what we actually find them doing? And the answer is simple. The laws the Pharisees are accusing Jesus by are made by man and not instituted by God. They are the laws of man. And not instituted by God. What was the command of God regarding the Sabbath? He said, remember it to keep it holy. Do not work, nor your sons, nor daughters, nor your servants, your male servants, nor your female servants, nor your cattle, nor your guests who are in your gates. So anybody in your household, not even your labor animals, are not to be working on the Sabbath day. God said, take this day and rest from your labors. Spend time to observe and worship God for what he's done for you, but do not labor. So were Jesus and his disciples laboring here? Were they commanding their servants to do so? Do you see anything in this text about them rearing up their cattle to go and pluck the grain? Of course not. You don't see anything like that going on. So how could the Pharisees then accuse them of breaking a law if we see that God's commandment was quite simple? It wasn't hard to decide whether or not you were laboring on the Sabbath day. It wasn't difficult to determine. So why did the Pharisees find their way to accuse Jesus of all these, all these bad things? What law did they accuse him of breaking? To be completely honest... There were probably a lot of laws they could have accused Jesus of breaking here. Did you know there were 24 chapters written in the Talmud, which was the Pharisees' book of law, on Sabbath law alone? The things you could or could not do on the Sabbath. 24 chapters that they had written about the Sabbath. Now, I want you to tell me, I, I, I can take one verse of Scripture and spend a lot of time talking about it. Don't nobody amen that this morning. But there's only one verse of Scripture in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, where God gives the commandment of the Sabbath. How in the world? Could, there ain't 24 words in that. They could write a chapter on each verse, and it wouldn't be 24 chapters. So how did they come up with 24 chapters? What are some of the things they wrote? Well, well one of the laws that Jesus was probably breaking, get this, On the Sabbath, you could not travel more than 999 steps. That's all you were allowed. 999. Why they settled there is beyond me. 999 steps you were allowed to take. But, now hang on, there was a little caveat. If prior to the beginning of the Sabbath you had placed some food 999 steps from your home, you could go to that food, eat it, and then walk 999 steps back home. Or you could choose to walk 999 steps further, but then you couldn't go home because that was going to require 1,800 more steps. You couldn't carry anything. That's why you had to place the food before the Sabbath began. You couldn't carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. Or if it weighed half a fig, you could carry it twice. If you put a whole olive in your mouth and it was bad, 
You couldn't put another whole olive in your mouth the rest of that day. You had to put a half olive in your mouth because your mouth had tasted the flavor of the whole olive. Now, who in the world would want to eat an olive is beyond me to begin with. Thank you, brother. They'd make that a grape. I could go for it. But why you'd put a whole olive in your mouth is beyond me. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the opposite hand from which you threw it, you sinned. If you tossed it in the air and caught it with the same hand, though, good to go. Cold water could be poured on warm water, but warm water could not be poured onto cold. There are many more. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. I think you get my picture. You get the point. Their laws were silly. They had spent a lot of time coming up with these crazy laws. Now, I want you to tell me where in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, where God instituted the Sabbath, you could possibly draw anything about eating an olive or how many steps you could take. Confusing, restricting. The problem there is the Bible says stop, rest, stop working, rest, and worship God. And the law of man said a whole lot of other stuff. And this is the problem with man-made laws and man-made ideals. They are too oppressive. They're beyond what could possibly be fulfilled. This extreme law-keeping is legalism to the T. And it is the exact opposite of grace, which is Jesus Christ. Now, thank goodness we don't have that problem anymore, right? Whew. Brother Jason, I'm glad we don't have that problem. Well, wait a minute. In a sense, we do. Now, maybe we don't walk around with a Sabbath checklist watching everybody and seeing what they do and seeing what goes on and, and crying lawbreaker every time you break one of these crazy legalistic laws. But I think we do tend to be a little letter of the law in our own minds sometimes. So what do you mean, Brother Jason? Well, I'll give you one example. When I was a youth pastor, I would teach a series on sexual relationships every other year to the kids, 7th through 12th grade. And every other year, it never fails, every time I taught this series of lessons, I always had this question. Brother Jason, I understand it says what we can't do before we're married. But what can we do exactly? Is, is this too far? Let me give you this example, Brother Jason. Me and my boyfriend, and then, is this too far? Now, as a young youth pastor, I had to be careful how I answered that question, didn't I? Last thing I wanted to tell some young lady is tell her she could or could not do something. I'm not her parent. That's not my responsibility. But the answer was always the same, not whether or not what they were doing was wrong. The answer was always this. If your question is, what can you get away with, you're already asking the wrong question. The question should never be, what can, what can I get away with? It should be, does this honor God? That's a very easy question to ask yourself before doing anything. Is what I'm about to do going to bring glory to God in any way? If the answer is no, then quite honestly, you shouldn't do it. Do we all live by that? Of course not. But quite honestly, that should be the question that we ask ourselves. But what, what question do we ask ourselves? Can, can I do that and get away with it? If I do that, is God going to stop loving me? If I do that, is that beyond the forgiveness that God offers me? If I'm, if I'm mean to this person but not to that one, if I do it and then say I'm sorry, 
How much sin can I get away with before I've gone too far? And the answer is never how much sin can I get away with before I've gone too far. If you are a child of God, it ought to be I hate my sin so much that the moment I do any of it, it crushes my soul. God, I'm so sorry. God, not what can I get away with, but how can I glorify you? But before you get too hard on the Pharisees, because it's easy to jump on them. They're an easy target. God, I can't believe they come up with all them laws. What's wrong with them coming up with all them laws? Just cut them a little slack, okay? They had good intentions, likely, when they started. If you were a man walking through this world, or a woman, and you knew that you were to observe the Sabbath in order to keep it holy, and you knew that the Scripture said, don't work, and you knew that you were supposed to rest and not work on the Sabbath, might you be inclined to want to know what was described as work? What, what can I do? What do I not have to do? So man began to write these laws so that they could make sure they were being godly and honoring God on the Sabbath. The problem is, as man begins to write the laws, they get way, way too strict. We do that today, though. What, how much sin can I get away with? You know what question that inevitably I get every year about this time of year? Brother Jason, in regards to tithing, am I supposed to tithe pre-tax or post-tax? And if I tithe pre-tax, when I get my income tax refund check, do I have to tithe off that since I already tithe pre-tax? Do you see the problem with those questions? God didn't need your money pre-tax or post-tax. God allows you to give a portion of what he already gave you to begin with back to him as the first fruits. If you are so worried as to whether you're giving exactly 10% or 10.25 or 11.9 or 9.8, you've missed the mark. It's an opportunity for you to worship God through giving what he gave you back to him to begin with. It was his to start with. It's going to be his when it finishes. Do you think he needs it to build his kingdom? He is letting you worship Him and you've turned it into a legalistic method. Don't stop tithing though. I guarantee you He didn't command you to do that. The Pharisees were looking for rules for a reason. They started out good, but they went too far with it. Where'd they, where'd they go? They went to a place where grace no longer mattered. Where Jesus no longer mattered and legalism was the only thing that mattered. How can I check my Jesus box for this week? How can I check the God box for this week? By honoring God. And it's how do you not check it this week? It's how do you check it with every single breath? So first we see the accusation that's made by the law of man. But next we'll go see an answer in a term that man could understand. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus begins to tell a story. And you might say that he knows his audience. Rather than just start out, you know, what did, what did Jesus have all authority to say to the Pharisees when they said, why do your disciples do what is not lawful according to the Sabbath? He had every right. Jesus could have with every right just simply said this, I'm Jesus. Get over it. My disciples do what they do because I'm the man and you don't really matter in the scheme of what is important and what is not. 
That's what Jesus could have done, couldn't he? But Jesus knew his audience. He knew his audience was an audience that had read the Old Testament Scriptures, that had grown up studying the Old Testament Scriptures, that had looked closely and would know them and know them and know them. So he kind of gets a gig in on the Pharisees right off the bat. Look what he says. He says, have you never read? Keep in mind, he knows his audience. What do these people do all the days of their lives? They read the text. They study the Old Testament Scriptures. They're supposed to write them in their heart. They're supposed to be the ones that know them. They're supposed to be the ones that got them. And he says, have you never read what David did? And he's kind of saying, hey, remember this story you read from the Scriptures? About that old King David that you worship so mightily? Don't you remember what he did? And this story he's talking about is found in 1 Samuel 21. If you want to write that down and go back later on your own. 1 Samuel chapter 21. But basically what's happened is David is fleeing south and Saul is chasing after him because Saul wants to kill him. This is when Saul is chasing after David. And he comes to a place called Nob. N-O-B, Nob. And this is where the tabernacle was located. So David was hungry and his people that were with him were hungry. So he goes into the tabernacle and he asks the priest for some bread. And the priest answers him with this answer. There's no common bread. So there was no bread that was really meant for people that weren't priests to eat. All that was in the temple was what would be called the show bread. So he said there's no common bread. But then the priest says this. He says, but if your men have been holy then I'll let them have some bread. If, you're, if your men have been holy, I'll, I'll let them have some bread. So what, what was show bread? What was common bread? What is holy bread? So let me explain that real quick. Every Sabbath, hot bread would be brought into the tabernacle in that time. They would be brought to the golden table. Twelve loaves would be placed. And what that would symbolize is the twelve tribes of Israel needing to come in communion with God regularly. And so these twelve loaves would be laid out. And those 12 loaves would sit there that entire week. And then the next week at the next Sabbath, when the new loaves were brought in hot and fresh, they were placed as the showbread. The 12 loaves that were took down, because they had been holy bread, set as a symbol, were not able to be eaten by common man. It could only be eaten by priests, those who had been consecrated. That's in Leviticus chapter 25. If you really want to read it, that's where it's at. Now this priest, though, was wise enough to understand something. Even though the scripture had said only those who were priests could eat of this holy bread, the the priest began to understand that while the ritual had its place, it did not supersede mercy. And Jesus is trying to point out to the Pharisees something in this story. He's trying to show them that no ceremony, that no ceremony, no ritual, overrules relationships and people. No ceremony should be upheld while someone starves to death. It would have been akin to us having a fellowship meal out back that was intended to celebrate someone in our midst specifically, having someone walk in the door who was hungry and saying, I'm sorry, you're not a part of this church. You can't take that food. Go on. We hope you make it. Good luck. And that's what the priest understood. And Jesus is showing them this. If David could violate that symbolic eating of that bread on the Sabbath, 
and continue with God's blessing through his journey, then surely these disciples, and they're okay violating a man-made regulation that isn't even in Scripture. Your man-made regulation is that you can't reap, and they considered breaking the heads off the grain reaping. So surely they're okay to do that. So what do we, how do we determine this difference, Brother Jason? What is man-made law? What is allowed? What, what, what's the story there? That's going to bring us to our third point this morning. The answer is truly Jesus. The answer is truly Jesus. Verses 27 and 28. Jesus says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So what does that even mean? Simply put, God said, Sabbath was instituted for man's benefit. Sabbath was instituted for man to have a day of rest from his labors to worship, and it was instituted as a blessing to man. Man, though, created such a burden with the laws of the Sabbath that he had created that the Sabbath could no longer be what it was created to be. It was meant to be a blessing for man, but man had somehow instituted himself into it and began to act like he had created it. I created it so I can make the laws about it. God said, I created it. You can't make the laws about it. You can't taint what I created. Jesus is basically saying, God created the Sabbath and I don't need you to define it or what can be done in it. He says, I created the Sabbath for you. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And by saying these words, he essentially nailed the Pharisees one more time and he said, I am above your laws. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And he delivers that blow to the Pharisees. And it should deliver a blow to us this morning. We can not taint what God has created. We can not supersede the grace of God with our laws and our standards and our thoughts and our own plans. So what does it mean to us this morning? What we should take from this is not only that Jesus is Lord of Sabbath, but Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of everything. Because if he's the Lord of Sabbath, he's the Lord of everything. Why should we worship him? Because he is Lord of all. Not because he needs our worship, but because we get to worship the King of Kings. How do we break out of the legalism that that can ensnare us? Stop asking what we can get away with. Stop thinking about what we can slide by with and start thinking about what brings God glory. When we look at others... Extend grace as Jesus did and stop slinging condemnation as the Pharisees. I don't know about you guys, but I bet if I put a checklist at the front and say, would you like to be a Pharisee or would you like to be a Jesus this morning? Everybody would have checked the Jesus box. But do we want to live that way? Or do we want to throw condemnation and have have the legalism of the Pharisees? So maybe you're here this morning and you've been shackled by a load of sin trying to do enough work to work it off. Friends, you can't. 
You can't get rid of that burden of sin. If you could, it wouldn't be a burden. It'd be something you could deal with. Lay it at his feet this morning. Let him be the Lord of your everything. Maybe you're here, you say, brother, there are areas in my life that I've been hanging on to. I haven't been letting God have control of them. Won't you come this morning and let him be Lord of everything? You know, that's one of the most beautiful things about being a child of the one true king. Is that if he's the Lord of your life, he's not just Lord of your Sabbath. He's not just Lord of the days you come to church. He's not just Lord of the times when you're praying. He's not just Lord of the times when you're texting the pastor. He's not just Lord of times when you're talking to another member of the church. He's not just your salvation, but bless God, he's the Lord of all your pain. He's the Lord of all your hurts. He's the Lord of all your anxieties. And you know what he says in his word? Cast them upon me. Because I care for you. So would you come this morning and let him be Lord of your everything. Let him be Lord of your anxieties. Let him be Lord of your hurts and your pains. Come this morning. Give it to him. And finally, maybe you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You never accepted him. You've never had that experience where you've put your faith and your trust in God. You've never given it to him and said, I want you to be my everything. You know that right now, if you were to die, your eternity would be separated from God, not worshiping God. Because you're not his. Would you come this morning? Would you come this morning and trust in Jesus and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Give it to him this morning. Let's pray. Father God. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you from your word that even as you talk to the Pharisees, you can reveal truths to us, Lord God. That you can show us that our legalism ensnares us. That you can show us that your grace is sufficient for everything. God, would you give someone in here the courage who's carrying their, their burdens and their hurts and their pains and their failures and their anxieties on their shoulders, would you give them the courage to come this morning, lay them here at this altar and say, I want you to be Lord of these too, God. I've been carrying them myself. I've even been carrying them spiritually. But God, I need you to carry them now. God, I want you to be Lord of these nooks and crannies of my life that I've been hanging on to. I don't want them anymore. God, give somebody the courage in the house to do that this morning. And God, if there's someone here under the sound of my voice and the conviction of your spirit who's never been saved, would you give them the courage to stand and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to have this Jesus to cast my burdens on. I want to have this Jesus to trust. I want to have this Jesus to follow. And I want to be able to worship this Jesus as my Lord. God, we love you. And we promise that we will give you the glory for what you do and what you've done. Because you're worthy of all. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.
Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.